Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's do better than that. Good morning, everyone. All right. I'm Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. This message is officially PG-13. We sent it in the weekly email. It's in your worship folder. It's on the screen. The rest is up to you. And so um, younger kids will be uh, asking awkward questions. If it, has, if it doesn't go over the heads of the youngest kids, they will be asking you awkward questions or wondering about it later on. So that's now on you. So uh, anyway, this is an important topic, and I just want to uh, let uh, each of us know here that you know when we come across topics like this, uh, we hope you know that our intention is in no way to hurt or to offend people. We know that when you get into the topic of human sexuality, uh, it does bring a whole lot of uh, difficult things to the forefront. A lot of us uh, live with uh, guilt, regret, we have shame, uh, we have very strong opinions, there can be anger associated uh, with a lot of these things as well. And so all of that, I just wanna say, you know, I'm not, I'm not, we're not trying to do any of that, we're not trying to hurt anyone and not really trying to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Uh, not too much, at, at least, um, but uh, these are topics that we take from God's word and do our best to sort of uh, explain them out as, uh, as we try to, as we understand God's word. So anyway, again, PG-13, because sex is an incredibly important topic when it comes to both relationships and spirituality, which is why it's in this series called It's Complicated, because it is complicated. But we are a sexually confused people. In a great book that I had been reading uh, in the last couple of weeks called Sex, Dating, and Relationships, Heisted and Thomas said, on the whole, human beings are fascinated with sex. Men, women, young and old, Christians, atheists, and everyone in between. In all cultures, throughout all of history, sexual desire has been one of the greatest motivators of the human will. Men and women throw away their families, houses, money, and land in order to be sexually satisfied. Some are addicted to it. Wars have been fought over it. We compose songs, make movies, and write stories about it. And yet Americans are all screwed up in their thinking about sex. Some of you were thinking that that was a pun, and I'm going to try not to do junior high puns throughout the whole of this message. I, I'm gonna try. But we're confused about what is right, what is a perversion, what's allowed, what ought to be encouraged, what is taboo. Some harbor secret thoughts that sex is shameful. Loads of parents neglect to talk to their kids about sex. Why? This topic among all, we, we actually can't discuss with our own kids. What gives it its power? Couples will refuse to get help to talk about 
sexual dysfunction. Why? Shame? Embarrassment? Women have to fake satisfaction while men have pornography addictions that are violating the very intimacy that they're seeking, often in the same relationship. Nowadays, even devout Christians struggle. We wonder, well, I mean, how far is too far? You know, what are we allowed to do? Someone, show me the boundaries, give me a rule, give me a law. How far is too far? There are marriages struggling with intimacy, frequency, dysfunction. I mean, as, as a pastor, we get to work with couples all the time, marriages that are struggling, and we hear this come up time and time and time again. Engaged in dating couples are wondering whether or not they should take a test run, you know, just to check for sexual compatibility before the marriage. How could that be a problem? We already have a commitment. There are single adults that wonder, where does the teaching of the Bible leave them? How does this, how does this impact, us, restri- impact us restrictively with a whole lifetime of celibacy? So what does the Bible say about sex? And I tell you, man, it says lots. All over the place, there are things that we can learn about human sexuality. In fact, there is so much that we could talk about. Now, unfortunately... Chris and Trevor will only give me one week during this series to talk about it. I wanted six, and they've only given me one during this whole series. So we need to be very selective in what we cover this morning. So if you could open up to Proverbs 7, that's where we will get started. Proverbs 7. And just sort of as a way of summarizing the first nine or so chapters of Proverbs... What we find out is that there are two paths that we can choose from. Really, what's happening in those early chapters of Proverbs is a bit of a a smackdown going on between two women. The Proverbs 7.10 woman, the woman folly, we will call her, Seven in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. This is the woman folly. Then we meet the Proverbs 8, verse 1 woman, who we will call the woman wisdom. Does not wisdom call out, Proverbs 8, 1, does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. So what we really see here are these two paths, which of course represent the path of Satan and the path of of Jesus. So don't get all hung up on the fact that they have the the image here of a woman, because this isn't really actually a, a lesson about a sinful woman leading us astray, but it's about two paths, because remember, the woman here gets both platforms. She gets folly and she gets wisdom. The, the, the choice that we're being given is to pick, the, pick a path that we're going to choose to walk down. And when it comes to sex, the woman folly leads to sexual immorality. She leads to sexual immorality. Now, every culture has some set of taboos regarding sex. Just think about that for a moment. Why is that? 
every culture you find anywhere in the world have some sort of restrictions that we would put on sex. Now, this is a, a curious thing because if you think about it here, nothing in human sexuality mandates that. That's not a, a natural or a biological decision that we make. And yet every single culture makes that decision. Because from a purely biological standpoint, nothing keeps a person from having sex with whomever, whenever, however they want. Not from a strictly biological standpoint. Nothing will keep a person from having sex with multiple partners, with any gender, with children, with relatives, or even animals. There is no reason in the natural world to restrict even the most perverse of expressions. I think what this tells us is that the reason every single people group around the world has taboos is because we know we need them. Everyone puts some sort of restriction. Maybe it's to protect marriage and there are taboos against adultery, or maybe it's against prostitution. Others will frown upon incest, most bestiality. See, there's, there's, a, there's an inherent desire to put boundaries, restrictions on sex. Why? I think that is because even the most remote tribe recognize that sex is more than an animalistic urge that needs to be satisfied. We know it intuitively. We know it deep in our souls that it is more than simply an animal urge. Everyone recognizes that sex needs boundaries. What boundaries? The local government, whatever they say, is that the boundary we now accept? Or Maybe it's something different. Maybe there's some ivory tower professor who's written a great monograph and that's the one that we're going to accept. Or maybe it's Hollywood because they're so good at this stuff that we should accept Hollywood's decision as to what restrictions that we're going to follow or allow. Or maybe, you know, it's some, you know, some hippie from the sexual revolution. Maybe that, you're like, yes, that's the, the policy I'm going to follow. Those are the restrictions. Or maybe it's some hypocritical prude who's constantly yelling about how evil and dirty sex is. Whose rules are you going to follow? Well, maybe it's yours. You know, or yours. Maybe you're going to follow yours. Or mine? Who are we going to follow? You see, this is why when we come to the scriptures, we say, no, I think what I'll do is I think I'm going to follow the Bible's ethic for sexuality. I think I'd rather find out what our creator said was good and right for us. And according to the Bible, we get to explain now what sexual immorality is all about. Any sexual behavior outside of God's plan for human flourishing is sexual immorality. God intended sex for one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship until death do they part. That's his intention for human sexuality. So open marriages, perversions of every sort, multiple partners, violence and degradation, 
inside and outside of the marriage, high-risk behavior, premarital sex, the hookup culture, all of these things and more violate biblical sexual ethics. I came across this week in that same book that I referenced earlier a helpful overview. He lists three categories of relationships. And so the first that, that the Bible uh, actually discusses in terms of relationships and sex is the family relationship. So it lets us know that there ought to be no sex with any of our close relatives. And all of us go, oh, good, because, <laughs> So we go, yes, that's a good rule. We like that rule. That, that's something that we all sort of just like and intuitively think is great. That was clearly laid out in the scriptures. There's another category that the Bible legislates, talks about, and that's the neighbor category. Now, the neighbor in the scriptures is anyone who isn't your family member and who you're not married to. And the neighbor category, according to the scriptures, sex is forbidden. There is to be no... Now, of course, we actually already know this because we know how our neighbors would feel with any sort of sexual behavior between us and, say, their spouse or their kids. And you go, all right, well, you know, yeah, they're upset about it because it's not supposed to happen. Then the third category that the scriptures give us is marriage where it says not just that it's permitted, it's actually commanded. You're supposed to have sex and plenty of it if you are married. So now we look at this and we go, wait a second. These three categories make it look so simple, but it seems so much harder to us. It seems so much more complex to us. Well, okay, well, maybe, maybe the reason it's complex to us isn't because the teaching of the Bible is not clear, Maybe the reason it's so difficult is because we don't like what we find when we get there. Maybe it's not difficult to know what the limits are. Maybe it's difficult to do what the Bible says. Because what we do is we create a fourth category of relationship. We'll say it's dating. That's a whole new category. And we go to the Bible and we go, well, what does the Bible say? Is sex permitted in the dating relationship? Let's call it even hooking up or friends with benefits. We, we create new categories and we say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. I just, son of a gun, look at that. Maybe we have a lot more flexibility in this. Well, no, you're creating a category the Bible hasn't addressed because it's a brand new category. It doesn't actually exist in the way that God explains human relationships. In fact, if it does exist, then the best way to understand it is to put it as a subset of the neighbor category. So it actually falls under the restrictions of the neighbor category, which of course, we don't like to hear that, but we already know it's true based on how people would actually respond in those circumstances. Like for instance, you're a married person and your neighbor next door is particularly friendly and married Anything that you would do with them that their spouse would say is wrong would fall in the neighbor category. So now this helps us come back to the question, well, how far is too far? Well, anything that you would feel uncomfortable doing in the other two categories, they don't belong there. 
So you want to know what's right in your dating relationship or in your relationship with your friends? Well, if you're comfortable doing it with your sister, I mean, this, it, it's in the family, then it's legit. If you're comfortable, if your neighbor would be comfortable with you doing it with their child, their daughter, or their spouse, well, then it's fine. Which, of course, shows that sex is much more than intercourse. And we all know this. We don't necessarily like it all the time when hormones start raging, but we sort of already knew, know this. Sex is more than simply intercourse. Oral sex, still sex. Mutual masturbation, heavy petting, fondling, even types of kissing are all sexual in nature and according to the scriptures, are to be restricted for the marriage relationship. To not do that is to follow the way of folly into sexual immorality. Now, here's the thing. Many of us say, well, we've already made these mistakes. I've already violated these categories. How do I not violate them in the future? And that's where Proverbs 7 actually offers us a whole lot of great insight. I'm not actually going to develop it with you much. I just want to kind of hit a couple high points and encourage you. If you're looking for a way to avoid the path of folly, then meditate and read through Proverbs 7. Take a look, for instance, in Proverbs 7, verse 5. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. Seductive words, those, those tantalizing promises, that little sweet talk that draws us into the path of immorality. Or how about compromising places? Look at verse 8. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. He, he put himself in the very place where the temptation would be greatest. He went looking for trouble. And some of you, you might know this about yourself. You know, whenever I do this, whenever I get with these people, whenever this happens, maybe for you it's business trips. You're like, you know what? Whenever I'm away on a business trip, this is when I do my worst. This is when the temptation is the strongest. This is when I do boneheaded things. This is when I should. Then you need to, you need to take steps to keep yourself away from compromising places. Maybe it's compromising times, like in verse 9. Or maybe there are tantalizing images, like verse 10. Maybe it's dangerous contact, like you see in verse 13. She took hold of him. She kissed him with a brazen face, she said. Then maybe it's not that. It's not, it doesn't have to be a kiss for you. What are the, what's the dangerous contact for you? Maybe it's that subtle brush of a hand or the lingering hug. Or it's that gaze that holds just a little too long before you finally break it off. Maybe that for you is dangerous contact. You need to know this. Examine your hearts in this way. Another dangerous one here is twisting faith. Look at verse 14. This is religious language she's using. Today I fulfilled my vows and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. I can't tell you how many immoral relationships begin when people connect over spiritual things. How often in churches, because there is such an innocence and such a purity in the relationships and there's such a deep emotional spiritual connection that all of a sudden it, it blossomed into something destructive. 
We've even heard people go so far as to say, well, clearly God meant this. We met in church and we love each other and we obviously, it's better for me to leave my wife and kids and be happy because God wants me to be happy, right? I'm sure I've heard you say that. We've heard this kind of rationalization. It can be dangerous and twisting of the faith. There are not so innocent meals also found in verse 14. There's inappropriate attention. Look at verse 15. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. Oh, the flattery. Oh, the compliments. You know, I was thinking about you last night. Oh, you were. Oh, what were you thinking? When, when were you thinking? What were you doing when you were? You see, you, get, you start to have this, these, this inappropriate attention and we feed off of it. We move into it, sexual temptation in a blatant way in verse 16. Promise of anonymity in verse 19. Failure to count the cost, verse 22. So you can work through this in a devotional way and ex use it to examine your heart and to help keep you far from the path of folly. And I know it feels like a whole lot of rules, and, and often people look at this and we go, oh my goodness, you're making God out to be this sort of cosmic killjoy. But these rules actually point to something amazing. You see, folly leads to sexual immorality, but the woman wisdom leads to, to sexual wholeness. Sexual wholeness. Purity is the first part of wholeness. But there is so much more to sexual wholeness than simply a list of things you should not do. But the historic church has led us astray and might actually be partly responsible for the severe backlash that we experience against purity. Because the, the early church was birthed in a profanely perverse sexual culture, not unlike our culture today. And the church responded with extreme overreaction. St. Augustine, he said, uh, he was feeling guilt from his own sexu uh, sexual sin of his earlier years. He declared that all sex other than sex for procreation was wrong. An ethic that has stayed in much of the psyche of the church. Jerome, he went further to say that anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. Have you lost your mind? Like... Are you kidding me? Let's say that you have 365 opportunities a year to have sex with your spouse. All right? Now, I know there can be more if you double up on some days, which is always highly recommended. But let's start with 365 for easy numbers. In the, second, in the following centuries after Jerome... They forbid, to they forbid Christians to have sex on Thursdays because that's when Jesus was arrested. And you can't have sex on Fridays because, of course, that was the day that Jesus died. And Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Christians shouldn't have sex. And on Sundays, well, of course you can't have sex on Sundays. You're supposed to be in church listening to me tell you not to have sex. You know, and then you can add, you know, days, the 40 days of fast period of Lent. We have the, the no sex during Advent rule that they came up with. And there's all sorts of feast days, which, of course, any feast and fast days, you're not supposed to. So much so that some, one scholar estimated that you could have sex 44 days out of the whole year. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are like, I will take 44 days 
a year. But if you had 44 days a year, if you just do the math, you will never hit the biblical minimum of three to four times a week. <laughs> so in the early church, they were just, they were major prudes. And a thousand years into the into history of the church, they finally codified the rules that priests had to be celibate. This is not working out as a good idea. In the Reformation, they tried to correct much of this, but they didn't go far enough. The Victorians of the 19th century brought shame and prudery back to the forefront. And today's church rarely talks about sex. And whenever it does, it usually just says, don't. We've lost the biblical perspective. We have failed to present a persuasive and biblical vision of human sexuality, and it has shrouded the hints of transcendence that are discoverable in sex. So why did God create sex? Well, of course he created it for procreation, sure, granted. But he also built it for relationships, and there's so much about it that is, that is so patently obvious. Like, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15, He's saying, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. I wonder what he's talking about here. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Listen, God, this is the pale, this is the easy version. You go to the Song of Solomon, that's the NC-17 version. Like it ramps up all of this kind of language to a whole new place. And we're going to do a whole series on the Song of Solomon one day when Chris and Trevor aren't around. <laughs> and, but you think about it, why this kind of thing? You see, God loves sex. He loves it. It isn't dirty or shame-filled to him. And you hate just as soon as you start to realize that it all makes sense, of course he loves it. We are incredibly over-equipped for sex. If you take all of the nerve endings and the pleasure centers and how he designed sex to work, you realize he created it with all of this extraneous stuff that goes way beyond procreation. Why? Why did he create it such that it would be so fantastic uh, in, a, in an art, a great article, Philip Yancey, he wrote, he wrote that uptight Christians forget the fundamental fact that God created sex. He says that we are abundantly and excessively well endowed as sexual creatures. Why? Relationship. That's the key. It was designed so that a man and a woman would come together in a relationship in a way that they never had with anyone else, unique. He tells us that human beings experience sex as a personal encounter, not just a biological act. We are the only species that commonly copulates face-to-face -face so that partners look at each other as they mate and have full body contact. It's about relationships. So does sex have that sort of significant role in your marriage? Christians, above all people, are to have the most exciting, shame-free, authentic, and fulfilling sex lives. Do you? 
That's how it was designed. And do not awkwardly look at your spouse right now. Eyes up front. Don't be like nudging and saying, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) We also have to recognize that God created sex to point us toward a mysterious union between us and him. This is a relationship that was meant to be marked with a singularity of focus and delight. There's wholeness in our sexuality. It means we're undivided. It's, it's, yes, you need purity for sexual wholeness. Absolutely. But you also must have delight. Delight in your spouse and delight in your God for genuine sexual wholeness to happen. G.K. Chesterton, he said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You know what he's getting at here, right? There's a transcendence that we're searching for. And we're trying, this is why we idolize sex in our culture, because we recognize there's something in it. Now, some people will say, well, that's, it's the false thing. Yes and no, it is the false thing, but it was designed to do the very thing that many of us wanted to do. We're just going about it the wrong way. Sex itself was actually designed to point us to a relationship with our creator that was supposed to transcend anything that this world could provide. You know, think of it this way, all right, human marriage, all right, all right, so in the New Testament, the image of a husband and a wife is the image that, that God uses to describe us and Jesus, right? So he says, Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. Then he says that the, the end of time, there will be a marriage supper of the lamb. It's a wedding feast. In the ancient world, you were married when you consummated the act, when you did the actual act of sex with your new spouse. That's how you were married. The language of the marriage supper of the Lamb is overtly sexual language. We look at that and we go, oh wait, God was trying to describe the best relationship between man and his creator. So he he looked through human relationships and he said, what's the best one I can find? Oh, it must be, I gotta do the marriage one. No. That's not actually how this went down. God started his design work with sex at the middle of it to point us to the relationship. The marriage is the living metaphor that God designed into the very fabric of creation to point us to the relationship that we are supposed to have with him. Why are we so obsessed with this? It's because it it betrays the search for transcendence, the connection that we want with our creator, and God ordained it to be so at the creation. That's how much he loves sex. And we tarnish that image with immorality or joyless sex with our spouses. So which woman will you follow? Folly wants you to gauge in all sorts of illicit and forbidden sex that damages our humanity. We think to ourselves, especially when we're young people, we think, you know what? I don't want to miss out on anything. I don't want to miss out. So I'm going to do whatever it is my friends are doing because I don't want to miss out. The restrictions and the rules are in place so you don't miss out. By doing it in a way that God didn't intend, you're actually missing out on the better thing that God has for you. And we understand that. Those of us who have already been down this road and made these mistakes, we know this is true. 
Purity sets a boundary within which sex runs free. Or will you pick the way of wisdom? Wisdom wants sex celebrated and delighted in under the protection of a covenant between a man and a woman. That's the longing of the woman wisdom. Now, many of you have already long screwed this up. Like me, you don't even have an excuse. Like, you know, some of you, you're like, you know, this is the first time I'm ever here and that I should, I should think about, you know, making some shifts or changes or thinking, no, you, this, is, you, this is brand new information for you. Awesome. Many of us aren't, aren't there. Many of us knew better and still made tragic mistakes. And Jesus will forgive our sexual sin. That's the promise of the scriptures. He'll restore our wholeness. You know, we get along in the scriptures. He calls us his spotless bride. And we go, no. <laughs> Dressed in white, no. I know me. And he's like, no, no, yeah, actually, that's, that's how I see you. He's offering you that forgiveness. And maybe that's what you need this morning. Maybe you need to open yourself up to Jesus and you need to invite him in and repent of sin, past and present, and be committed to moving forward with him. You can imagine what it would be like if we recognized the noble and the glorious picture that human sexuality is supposed to represent. And if we kept this high and holy and sacred picture before us, how it would change our lives and our interaction with other people and the respect and the kindness and the care that we would be able to show them. And I don't want anything less than that. For me, for any of you, I'm going to invite the band up, and as they come up, I'm going to give you a way to get another article. If you want to go deeper with this topic, uh, you can text the word article to that phone number, and it is the uh, Philip Yancey article that I've been referencing. I learned a whole lot from it this week, and uh, it's a really just a, a, great, uh, a great way to kind of get an overview of this whole topic and some of these more sacerdotal sort of images. So um, text it to that and uh, enjoy a genuinely great read uh, sometime this week. And also just let me say a word of prayer as uh, we turn our hearts to go to the Lord's table and the band leads us in a couple of songs. Lord, I'm praying that you would do this work in our hearts in only the way that you can. You know where we're at and you know the hurt and the shame and the anger, the frustration we felt. You know, Lord, how we have been reserved and believed that this gift was something dirty. You know how uh, we have been traumatized and how we have traumatized others. We're praying, Lord, that you would meet us in these moments, giving us your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. Amen.